and or the healing of other people, those we love, those we care about, those we worry about. I've always been minded in terms of the healing ministry of that great saying by Amy Carmichael when somebody said to her, I cannot pray for myself. And she said, I will pray for you so that while you can't, you don't have to. It doesn't cover the forensic grasp of every possible biblical interpretation of healing. But practically, we know exactly what she meant. And some of you will be in that situation this evening that you're here to pray for those who cannot or will not pray for themselves. Tonight, what I wanted to do, and quite briefly, I promise you, in the context of Holy Communion and the focus upon healing prayer, was to reflect on some practical aspects of prayer. First, I guess, we need to remember that God's normative will for people is wholeness. That Jewish word shalom, meaning the balance of the wholeness of body and mind and spirit, which is deep-rooted itself in believing and following a God who is whole and giving. And this doesn't mean always curative healing. Humans are mortals. Christians, like all other humans, catch and contract all the conditions known to our race. We all grow old, and with that aging, we deteriorate. Christian healing and prayers for healing aren't designed or intended to deny or reverse the general conditions of humanity so that this or that person never grows old or never catches a cold, for example, but rather that we might live our lives in a more accurately God-shaped way. And in time for us all, this includes living out what the early Christian saints referred to repeatedly as a good death, by which they meant that we were given the time and afforded the space and spiritual energy to commend ourselves into God's eternal care rather than being taken short, as it were, by our mortal end. But in the mysterious, deep and complex business of Christian healing, there are ways of discerning good ways to pray, what I've called tonight practical praying, so as to better align ourselves with what God wants and desires for us and for other people. So we look briefly at the story of Elijah, read for us by Mary Rose just a few moments ago, for our first couple of clues. Go and look at the sea, Elijah's servant is told. Could have been Elisha, probably not at this stage. It's a strange command, but one representing obedience and the exercising of faith. Perhaps to observe the primordial majesty of sea and waves and constancy and the greatness of God's creation. I've had some of my deepest conversations with God while watching the sea. But the context here is that there has been a three year long drought in the land. The prophets of Baal are slain, that uh, 
violent story of Elijah with a prayer calling down fire from heaven that consumes everything and the prophets of the Lord rise up and basically murder the prophets of Baal. Uh, causing some people commentating about this passage to see that now there might be rain after three, three and a half years because in a sense false religion has been removed from the land. But it's the perseverance that we're meant to note and I draw attention to tonight. I can't see anything, says the servant as he comes back the first time having looked at the sea. Keep looking, says the prophet, basically, who then keeps on praying for rain. But I can't see it, keep looking, keep praying for rain. I can't see it, keep looking and keep praying for rain. The prophet who is not discouraged by the non-appearance of rain. And on this occasion, it's seven times and an eighth before the servant returns from his vantage point, excitedly, no doubt, saying, it's a cloud. It's a cloud the size of a man's hand and I've seen it. Rain is coming at last. You see, the point of prayer is not only that it works but also because Jesus told his followers to be praying people or people of prayer and ultimately therefore for disciples whether in the Old Testament or the New prayer is founded on persistence and obedience not just on results But it is possible, going into the translating a view of the sea and of rain, that we are called sometimes, even in a service like this, to go on praying. I've held this person or this condition before God every day for so and so and so and so. And if there's a lesson to be learned from Elijah, it's, well, keep going. Keep praying. Perhaps if we're praying for other people, the courage to try and imagine that person whole and to remind ourselves of God's ultimate will of wholeness for that person. Keep praying. The second thing I want you to note from this little story in the life of the prophet Elijah is that Elijah takes up the right posture before God. Look at verse 42. He bent down to the ground and put his face between his knees. He is earnest. He's humbling himself. He's a great prophet. He's just had his finest moment. He is the hero of Israel. He can have the king and even Jezebel almost politically in the palm of his hand. But he knows who he is when he comes before the Lord. And therefore his posture is complete and utter homage to the one who is truly great. The posture of our hearts when we pray is an important practical feature, if I can use practical in that sense. At communion, I use it often because I find it personally so meaningful. That line that... Uh, goes back to 
the Protestant Reformation. Lord, we are not worthy to receive you, but only say the word and we shall be healed. Or the story of the proud, puffed up, self-important, wanting everyone to notice him, Pharisee, and then the poor man in Matthew's parable. And we're left in no doubt when we read Matthew's parable who God is really listening to. Posture in prayer is important. For the remainder of this sermon, I want to suggest good ways about how we can go, how we can say what we feel we need to say before God in prayer. But I confess to you, my brothers and sisters, that I haven't got bits of one kings that I can extrapolate for you, so I've just gone on regardless. There are eight points. I hope you're in for a long, long night, because I kidded you when I said this was a short sermon. It's three hours, ten minutes. No, I'm kidding you with that. <laughs> they're very short, but they're quite important. First, that all good prayer, even when it's made in times of great extremis, contains an element of thanksgiving. How we're tempted in a service which is focused upon healing prayer to move straight to remedy, straight to problem. Philippians 4 says, in every situation, in every situation, by prayer and petition, with thanksgiving, present your requests to God. Now sometimes, particularly when we're so clear about what it is we ought to be praying for, we either forget thanksgiving or we just can't easily bring thanksgiving to mind. We're so focused on something else. But thanksgivings for blessings, which we're told we're meant to count from time to time, but we probably don't often enough. Blessings which remember the times of the grace of God upon us. And if our lives are now not what they once were, a remembrance of another time, not just out of nostalgia, but out of thanksgiving for those happy years, for that time of contentedness, for that rich time, that purple patch of blessing when I was a member of that particular fellowship. Thanksgiving for who God is and what God has done and continue to do. Thanksgiving marks practical praying. Second, so does a focus on the person being prayed for. I know people who picture the person that they are praying for. Some of the healing team might just do that this evening. But they picture the person they're praying for and place them in what my mother calls intensive prayer. Placing them in their minds or their spiritual eye in the presence of God, perhaps surrounded by angels uh, or in a bed which is sat like a constant carer, Jesus himself. But the mental picture in which you place the person that you're caring for is a focus on the person. Not always focusing immediately on their need, but on what we desire to see, their wholeness under God. Thirdly, at the right time, we do need to discern the focus of need. 
in that person we're praying for or in ourselves. Though it's sometimes harder to do this for ourselves than it is for other people, which is why we need one another in prayer. There are at least three different kinds of sickness, for instance. And we have to discern whether the physical aspect is predominant or subsidiary. There's sickness of the spirit caused by sin or deep guilt which has placed barriers between the person and God perhaps linked to emotional or bodily sickness and very often the nub of the matter is the sickness which estranges from God which needs to be put right before anything else can be addressed because you've not got to the root of the matter. And very often, prayer must start with working out what repentance and change might be. There's sickness of the emotions, often the result of hurts inflicted by others or just painful things that have happened to people in their lives. Again, often connected to spiritual or bodily sickness. And to discern that that's the key issue often leads us to prayers for inner healing. Then there's sickness of the body, disease or accident, sometimes closely connected to or linked to or causing emotional or spiritual illness. Note the connectedness of these things. It's not often that we can pray either for ourselves or for somebody else entirely focused on one dimension of body or life or spirit or psyche. Why? Because God has not made us to be compartmentalized beings and therefore to be dogged with something which is physical has a knock-on effect. To feel estranged from God or of nobody has a knock-on effect. Fourthly is the next the reminder to request the presence of God. Surely, you say, we just assume the presence of God. But when Jesus was teaching his disciples to pray, he always ascribed the prayers instantly to God as if acknowledging who this prayer was made before and standing in the presence of. Again, sometimes when we're praying for ourselves or others, the focus can be on the presence of the Father or the Son or the Holy Spirit. Because that's the personality of God, if we can put it like that, that we discern is needed in this particular prayer. God's omnipotence or parental oversight. Christ's compassion or power or presence. The Holy Spirit's winsomeness or comfort giving or boldness. Remembering, of course, that there is only at the end one God in three persons. The presence of God to do what? In our prayers we do well to, to think through, not that we replace what God might tell us, but is the presence of God invited to bring peace to the person? To bring confidence to the person? Or in some instances to challenge or agitate the person? Because that's the way through the answer to the prayer and the healing needed? Is it to bring a person to a point of repentance? Is it about the seeking of forgiveness? Is it 
to discern that there needs to be a time of spiritual renewal or refreshment? Is it about the strength of the spirit enabling a person to deal with deep or inner problems, etc., etc.? Good practical praying, you see, takes time to discern what to request as you lift that person into God's presence and care. Fifthly, to discern in our practical praying how specific to be. Elijah was quite often very specific. There are lots of occasions in the scriptures where people are very specific. Jesus, if you look at all his commands about prayer, is a mixture of being specific sometimes and incredibly vague others. Sometimes it's good to be specific and sometimes it's not necessary. Sometimes when we've done all the things that I'm talking about, at the end of the day, you haven't a clue really where to start. And you're then left on complete reliance and it's not a bad thing to recognize from time to time, especially if you think you're a good prayer to recognize that ultimately God knows what is needed here and your job is to place yourself within the will of God, whether with words or not. Six, to be open to praying in the spirit. Remember what it says in Romans, the spirit helps us in our weaknesses for we do not know how to pray as we ought but the spirit intercedes for us with sighs too deep for words. That word sighs uh, in Greek is a kind of breath of God. (sighs) So praying doesn't always need words. And its spiritual power and effectiveness is rarely measured by the number of words. But praying in the spirit also includes being open to exercising charismatic gifts such as speaking in tongues or being given words of knowledge or realizing that you have been given a gift of healing. It's often imagined that God gives such gifts to the most spiritual of folk that somehow they're a kind of mature Christian badge of honor. But in fact they are given by God to some for others for the common good and where there is discerned need of the use of the gifts of the spirit that's where you can most expect that they arise and erupt within God's people so consequently we should all be open to receiving those gifts of God which help us pray better and more closely according to the will of God Sometimes just asking the Holy Spirit to come and fill our thoughts and inhabit our words changes how we are able to pray, able to grasp the things of God, to be a more useful vehicle and vessel for God in this particular context. Seventh, in your prayers, include appropriate others. Those who might be agents of what God wants to do. For instance, if a person is sick, if they have deep inner hurts, who else is involved there? There's very often a family, relatives, 
Let me tell you that after 39 years of being a Methodist minister, sickness or illness in families and communities, I've never ever found to be a solitary suffering. There are people affected by that person's sickness or illness all over. How do they figure in our prayers? If the person is ill or in hospital, how do our prayers extend to people who are caring for them at home or in hospital? The visitors from the local church, who are the appropriate others that in practical terms we bring into the prayer? And finally, eighthly, you can't pray for other people. You can't even pray for yourself sometimes without asking God how God wants to use you in the fulfilling of his will. So that's why prayer constantly changes the prayer. Even when we didn't think our prayer was particularly about anything that would result in us being changed. So, pray thankfully. Pray diligently and repeatedly. Pray regularly. Pray discerningly. And pray practically. To a God who delights to receive the prayers of his people and rejoices when our prayers begin to bear the marks of prayer which are shaped by listening and learning and faith and wisdom. A God who longs for our wholeness and our completeness in Christ and we're told is more ready to hear than we are to ask. Amen.